Welcome to the Work Life Podcast. We've been doing a number of interviews lately, and we are talking with women leaders this month and next month. And with me today, I am happy to introduce Dr. Amy Benami. She is a professor and a co-director of the Women's Leadership Institute. Welcome. Thank you, Jamie. Excited to be here. Excited to have you here. I was lucky enough to hear Dr. Benami present to the Women's Networking Association of MSU. And from that, got very inspired and wanted to have this follow-up chat. I'm looking forward to talking. Good. Um, Why don't we start by talking a little bit about your experience as a woman in leadership, particularly in higher education, but what it's been like for you. Yeah, so it's been an exciting process. So I was uh, recruited from one big Big Ten institution to another to chair an academic department. I had never considered leadership, um, kind of a formal leadership role. I mean, obviously been leading um, grants and projects, leading in the classroom and uh, different committees and whatnot. It was really an opportunity to be to lead a whole department and to kind of think about uh, going beyond my own scholarship to think about how I could help promote an entire unit. Uh, success around academic success, scholarship success, um, and outreach success. So that was exciting. Um, what I didn't know um, at the time that I accepted the position is that I had uh, been hired into what we call a glass cliff scenario. So the glass cliff is something that was first formulated by Ryan and Haslam in 2005. And it's really the idea that women tend to get promoted and uh, elevated into leadership positions when organizations or departments are struggling or they're mm, in crisis. Yeah. Yep. And their their risk of failure is, is higher in those situations. So they're kind of disproportionately finding themselves in those situations uh, relative to men leaders. So uh, sometimes people sort of shy away from those glass cup scenarios. But um, one thing I really love about the president of Trinity Washington University, she says she loves being a cliff dweller um, because of the opportunity that it really provides to advance large-scale change and that's what we were able to do in our department is really uh, take a big departure from the status quo and move forward academic programs uh, scholarship and our our outreach efforts so when you found out that you were a cliff dweller in this role and you're on the edge of the cliff how did that feel what was that like for you yeah, so as you can imagine, probably has some ups and downs, right? So especially being a, a a new administrator, so the first time kind of running running a department, um, it was a new experience to kind of um, you know learn about sort of keeping that balance of uh, moving forward difficult processes. So a lot of a lot of um, kind of difficult HR processes needed to be moved forward, but at the still at still at the same time growing and invigorating and leading forward. Um, and inspiring change um, in, t- in terms of how we're going to move forward in a positive direction. So as you can imagine, you know, some of those HR issues were, were difficult to, to kind of navigate, um, but lucky to have great support here at Michigan State in terms of peers and um, support of other leaders. And so that that worked out well. How was the morale when you started? How was the morale in the department? Yeah. Well, it was mixed, okay. right? So, um, so you had uh, you know kind of a portion of faculty and staff that kind of wanted to move forward in the direction of doing something different, and you had a, a large portion that didn't. And so, which is pretty common. Anytime there's change, we have you know a lot of data shows us we have people that resist change, like hold on with their fingertips and not want to let it go, and other people that are like. Yes, we need change. Let's go for it. So that was your experience. That's exactly right. I mean, nobody. I would, let me take. I would say maybe maybe some people like change, but I say the majority of people is change is uncomfortable, right? Because it's kind of um, have, getting adjusted to new, new ways of thinking, new ways of doing things, um, new ways of kind of operationalizing and conceptualize yourself in, in a new system. So even those that are, that are enthusiastic about the change, um, it does take a period of adjustment. So we tried. Um, 
a number of strategies to kind of manage the pace of that change. So we had a faculty advisory committee, for example, who um, basically were responsible for, for redesigning our research plan and, and helping move forward our strategic planning process um, and really outlined what, what expectations should look like. And then we had kind of subgroups from that um, lead forward things and related to academic excellence and scholarship revision um, and then outreach components. So, but you're exactly right. You get kind you of a little mix of everything. Got a mix of everything. Yep. Well, I appreciate that personal uh, story, just knowing where you've come from and what you've been through. And I wonder um, if we could talk about women in general and what you've learned through your research, your scholarship, and women in higher education. But as we've learned, it really translates across all industries, whether you're faculty or staff or a postdoc, whichever the case may be. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the double bind that women face in leadership positions or even as we think of leaders as anybody in our departments? Yeah, absolutely. So the double bind um, was a landmark study that came out by Catalyst in 2007. And that study really synthesized the experiences of women in private industry. And there were kind of three components of the double bind. Um, The first is that women face extreme perceptions. So those agentic, decisive, risk-taking women, they tend to be perceived as harsh, um, sometimes not nice, not likable. Uh, whereas more nurturing, kind of community oriented women tend to be deemed as uh, too soft, too, too not necessarily effective. And so in the end, that Catalyst study found that women are never just right. Ah, um, so you're either likable or you're competent. Yeah, so that's the second uh-huh. component. Yeah, so oh, the, the oh, I'm kind remembering of, from yeah, the no, you're, <laughs> you're you're once I've had me. So the other kind of related piece is exactly what you're saying is that you can be perceived as either competent or liked, but you're rarely both. Right. So it's not that you can't be perceived as both competent and liked at the same time, but the study after study and this catalyst kind of brought that together um, was kind of uniformly saying that there, you either get that likability rating or you get that competent rating, but you're kind of rarely both. Yeah. And the third piece that the catalyst study found was that um, women have to do twice the amount of work to get half the credit as men. So as a woman leader, you're kind of putting in double time to get perceived as doing half the amount of what men would kind of Uh, does that come from that competency piece that's exactly right and there's lots of women to kind of go back to that glass cliff scenario that do make profound changes in their organization in that glass cliff right so even though they might come into a situation where um, things are in crisis they might not have the resources that they need I think women are very effective and resourceful kind of thinking like engineers right how am I going to see the whole, put these pieces together and operationalize what I need to, uh, to help this unit, department, organization be successful. Uh, That's good to know. Of course, we know it because we work with women that we admire or that we see have such an incredible impact. Um, Another thing that you talked about before, and I just, um, in your article in MSU Today, you talked a lot about the exclamation point and how we even come across an email. So I wondered if you could just share a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's interesting. So kind of going back to that double buy-in thing, perception, right? So there's kind of that likability component of like women are really evaluated very much. We see this not only in women's leadership positions, but if you look at student evaluations, for example, women professors are much more likely to be rated on that likability or not factor than than male professors. So it's kind of consistent across different areas. And um, as I as I was in the department chair role, you know, I really found myself struggling, especially early on with uh, 
communicate, like how I would be perceived in communication via email, right? So on the one hand, if you're bringing forward a new policy, right? So it's a, it's a new policy. Your, your email needs to be profesh, professional. Yet at the same time, that likability component, women are kind of, I think, all, often thinking like, should I include the thank you exclamation point at the end of that policy change email? Um, or should I say thank you, comma? And so really kind of struggling with the idea of if I didn't include the exclamation point, would I perceive, be perceived as not enthusiastic and not enough as a, a cheerleader for people in my unit uh, versus if I did include it, would I be perceived as over the top um, and not professional in the email? So and I think I suspect I think we need to do a study together, Jamie, yeah. to see if there are differences in kind of men's uh, and women's propensity to kind of use the exclamation point. And I'm I would hypothesize that men don't spend the amount of time thinking about whether to use an exclamation uh, point compared to women. So I wonder if it's the fact that we know that we have to be seen a certain way, or are we harder on ourselves as women that we're taking so much time thinking about how this message will be perceived? Um, I know for myself, it's been different throughout my career. At this point in my career, I'm just always myself. If I feel like putting a smiley face because I feel happy about something, I do. Of course, if I'm writing someone I don't know at all, I'm not going to use an emoji, right? But I also know that I'm a positive person, so exclamation points are okay. Cheerleading is okay. Um, But it takes a while to get comfortable even in our own skin in any role about how that's going to be perceived. Yeah, I love that idea, Jamie. So I love the idea of being your authentic self, right? So and I think you're exactly right. I think um, it may take some time, right, to kind of come to an understanding of what you feel comfortable with and what you don't feel comfortable with. So kind of the point of the exclamation point article was not necessarily that women change their behavior one way or the other, but to really kind of define what what makes sense and what's true for them. Absolutely. So if that exclamation point is something that's part of you, uh, whoever you may be as a woman leader, I th- it's very important I kind of continue that. Yeah, it's like, does the role define how we behave or do we define what the role is? Oh, that's deep. That's another study we need to do. <laughs> we do, that is. That's another study we need to do. That's great. Um, as we think about women in higher education and women here at Michigan State University, if they're coming across situations that I've heard about a lot lately, I mentioned to you, this to you earlier, where maybe they're not feeling heard in a meeting, regardless of their position. Maybe they're getting cut off or someone's taking credit for what they have done, things like that. How can we advocate for ourselves as women in those positions? And how can we advocate for each other if we see uh, one of another of us struggling? Or do you have any examples or ideas about that? Yeah, I love I love that question. So I think there's a let me start with what we can do for each other. Yeah. And I think um, as women, and I think as, as our allies as well, men and, and people who identify as other uh, other gender identity, I think can play a role. So kind of as a bystander. So if observing somebody who's tried to share their opinion, or maybe the more quieter one in the room and hasn't spoken up, uh, really being the one to maybe solicit opinion, you know, you might even check out with the person beforehand, like I noticed you're quieter in the meetings, I'd love to solicit your input, are you comfortable if I ask you during the meeting to share. Oh, that's um, a great idea. Yeah. And if you uh, if you see somebody being cut off or hear somebody being cutting off, um, you know, being, ad- being an advocate in that situation saying, hey, you know, I heard Jamie mention that a little bit earlier in today's conversation. Could we go back to that? Um, especially when it's a situation where you may have been talked over or the same kind of idea has 
been shared, but you had shared that earlier in the meeting. Um, so I hear what a women tied to the imposter syndrome talk a lot about how they don't feel, even with, with large amounts of education and large amounts of experience, they still feel, um, some feel a bit of an imposter syndrome. And they'll talk about the being talked over in meetings and being quieter as, in meetings as an extension of that. They're afraid to speak up or they're afraid, you know, if they have been talked over to, to kind of bring that to light. Well, probably there also there's also fears within us that we say, ooh, if my idea is wrong, here's another time I'll be judged. Yeah, I can see that. Being, That's exactly right. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about um, being a woman yourself in leadership, what women can do for themselves and or for each other, what can we do for ourselves to help develop our sense of um, courage, our sense of pride in the work that we do, our sense of being being able to be what I call psychologically safe at work, being ourselves at work. I can be a woman with opinions and passion at work. What can I do to promote that amongst within myself? Sure, absolutely. So I'm going to start with networking and mentoring because um, I think those two are related, right? So I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so I think two of the most critical things I think we can do for ourselves and for each other is really build those networks. So sometimes people think like, oh my gosh, networking means I need to go out to a to a conference that has 800 people and you know make 500 contacts during that that mentoring or, uh, that conference. That's maybe true for some people, and that may be a, a, a helpful way for them, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean that's a model that fits for everyone. So I think the key around um, networking is really to think about who might those informal peer contacts, not even necessarily you know, be someone above you, but those peers that can serve as in an informal capacity. So being willing to reach out to somebody and say, hey, would you like to have coffee? Would you like to go have tea? Would you like to take a walk across campus? Um, and then more- Those are great ideas, yeah. Yeah, and then more formal networking spaces. I think MSU um, and other universities have really wonderful networking spaces. I'll, I'll chime in with the Work Life Office here, really running the Women's Networking Association and some of the work of the Academic Advancement Network, really providing some of those more formal structures. Yeah, and, I'm really proud to be um, a part of the Work Life Office and the Women's Networking Association. And you mentioned the Academic Women's uh, Academic Women's Forum through Academic Advancement. And then we have a Women of Color community. That's another community that's a very strong community on campus. So there are things that we can take advantage of right here on campus where we can meet other people, build those networks, which I think is really powerful. Um, I have people on campus that I really look up to that I've worked with over the years, and it does help watching people do things the way that you envision yourself doing things and getting those examples. And I think for most women, we tend to be verbal processors, and so having someone to bounce ideas off of can even help ourselves become clear in what it is we're seeking or looking for. I think that's a great idea. So it's kind of like this shared discussion kind of forum and shared, you know, being able to share ideas, even if they're, you know, from my perspective, kind of hearing what you're saying, too, that whatever setting that you're in, there's always something new that you learn, even yeah. if it's something that you've heard before. It's a new way to kind of integrate it into your existing practice. So I, I love that. I think of that with self-care. Um, every time you hear something, a presentation, or I give presentations on that, there's something new I take away every time. Our diversity, equity, and inclusion work, I hear someone in a different way. Just every time we're going through these trainings, to me, they're not, oh, this again. To me, it's, oh, good. What can I get from this again? <laughs> what more can I learn? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, for sure. Can I add, two on the mentoring piece? I think it is related to networking. And um, so 
Mariko Silver, who's the president of the the um, Henry Luce Foundation in the in New York City, says that kind of her new model of mentoring is networking. Mm-hmm. So really, rather than kind of identifying if one one mentors your mentor, that's great. You might consider having multiple mentors, right? And they might be at different phases of their career, and they might be women and men, or women, persons of other gender identities. So, just kind of recognizing um, the multiple models, and then I think professional development is really important. I think one of the things is we how we can support each other as women is is kind of understanding that necess- that not every um, professional development opportunity fits everyone. So sometimes a session on negotiation might fit with some a group of women, but then not necessarily apply to others. So really thinking about finding those spaces where you feel comfortable and feel the connectivity with others, I think is is critical. No, I definitely agree. And I think when we get professional development opportunities from the work life office perspective, it's a way of supporting a positive workplace, showing people that we value you and your growth and your development. And then personally, what we gain from it is it might be a dud of a presentation, but maybe we met someone that we connect with or we have somebody new to draw from, or it was a dud for us, but maybe we can give that information to somebody else. One of the things I like to say to people all the time is if you don't need this information, you might know somebody that needs this information. <laughs> I love that. And you can be that person, that go-to person. Absolutely. Yeah. Can I mention one other thing about of supporting course. each other? Yeah. And that is... Um, we can't get enough of that. We <laughs> them all the examples. Yeah. I mean, I think the ways that we can both be advocates and allies for ourselves and advocates and allies for, for others, uh, you know, regardless of gender, um, is really kind of thinking about implicit biases, right? So I know we're doing a lot of that through the work-life office and other units on campus kind of understanding how those operate, how they privilege and disadvantage uh, people at intersectional identities across multiple settings. And then how do we uh, modify behaviors and perceptions to reduce um to mitigate some some of those realities. So I think that's really important to kind of, and to have spaces to talk about that on a continuing basis with each other. Um, and then when you when you do kind of see uh, bias and unfair expectations being applied to women and, you know, at the intersection of multiple identities, being okay with calling that out. I think that's really important work. And it's important for all of us to consider that. I think about that all the time. Even in our Women's Networking Association, we always say open to all. This is intended to be a networking and professional development space for women. But if you can benefit for that, we welcome you. And that I think it's important to be um, both intentional but also open because we don't know how someone um, perceives a certain opportunity. And we want to make sure that we can learn from each other all the time. I love that idea of inclusivity that you're using because I think – I don't think – but in any space, right, there's a lot of in and out group dynamics – so I think the more the extent to which we can build the sense of inclusiveness and, and, and being part of the in, um, because I think in academia in particular it's challenging. Um, I mean, I'll think about just faculty members. You know, it's a very individualized, an individual rewarded system, so it can be very isolating. I think the same is true for ta- for some staff on campus. So I think I love that idea of this is open to all. And that's a whole conversation I think we should have about building community at MSU, (laughs) something the work-life office works really hard on. And there's a lot of units across campus that work hard on that with students, with faculty, with staff, um, and all different uh, areas. But I think it's interesting to note that when we build a strong community by being inclusive, it benefits all of us. And so looking at our privilege, looking at our areas where we fit in a category that might be underrepresented or 
and might be disenfranchised in any way. I think looking at like the whole of ourselves is pretty complex, but it's important work to be able to build our community and try to learn from one another. Absolutely. So I appreciate that. I appreciate those. Um, I do want to ask you from your faculty perspective. Um, I do consultations in the work life office and I have faculty in here and there's fixed-term faculty, pre-tenured faculty, tenured faculty, um, postdocs that are doing a lot of work. Um, And I do feel like there's a lot of othering in those circles. Is there something particular that you can think of that would be helpful to make people feel included into the in when it comes to faculty? It's such a good question. So I I did some work for the provost's office on this issue of um, inclusion and feelings of being included and part of the in-group among pre-tenured faculty, fixed-term, specialists, um, other academic staff. And I think the, and I'll say kind of the perception from both those, the focus groups that I did in the survey, as well as my experience as a department chair, it seems like one of the biggest things I kind of took away from both of those spaces is <clears throat> cultivating an understanding of the other and the experience of the other. So, so it's um, I, I, there's such a divide, right, between what tenure stream faculty members need to focus on, what fixed term faculty members are asked to focus on, what academic staff are asked to focus on, and in fact, they describe their positions as being kind of ill-defined. Um, role expectations. And I think that it would help just in the same way we think about implicit bias training. Part of it is the perspective taking and understanding what it would like to be in another's shoes, trying to better understand the experiences and how your underlying biases impact your association or your lack of association and your support or lack of support uh, for a group. So I think I kind of see like those groups not talking much unless they're in a in in a unique unit. I just haven't seen it consistently across campus. So it's more of a silo effect that I don't understand what your expectations, your pressures, your challenges are. So I look at it through my lens, which can often skew things and how we perceive each other. I think that's right. And I'll add to that. I think that there's a power structure dynamic, right? So absolutely. The hierarchical structure. Yeah. We like to think of ourselves as, you know, flat in, in academia. We're not right. So we do have senior administration levels, department chair levels, tenure streams levels, non-tenured tenure stream faculty, and then fixed term, and it kind of goes down like that. And from my work with the provost office, um, some of what I would hear from the fixed term faculty and academic specialists is, yeah, I think the tenure faculty, under, or they, they value what I do, but they, they're like, just stay down there and do what you do and don't bother us. So, and they would say things like, um, uh, you know, we were making big changes to our course catalog and our course kind of direction of what courses we're going to offer, but I'm the person teaching all those courses and I ne- my, my opinions are never solicited. So there's a lot of kind of communication. That, yeah. Communication. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Key mm-hmm. transparent communication mm-hmm. and getting input from all the affected groups is mm-hmm. something we could do better mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Um, I often talk to people too, about both their work life and their personal life. So when we talk about Um, an assistant professor, an associate professor, a tenured professor, a full professor, like all these terms we hear in academia. If you walk out of this campus and you tell someone, I had a woman tell me she was, uh, her spouse was in politics and she was an event at the Capitol and someone had said, oh, so what do you do? And she said, I'm an assistant professor. And he said, what do you do for the professor? 
<laughs> so she thought she was an assistant to the professor, which probably there was some bias there, perhaps. Yep. Uh, but also, she realized in that moment, and she shared this with me, and I, it was really enlightening. She said, we worry about it so much, or we consider it so much in this setting. But when we leave the setting, we're valuable. If we're teaching, we're valuable. If we're researching, we're valuable. And so I think that that people in their personal lives outside of academia, then they have this different experience inside of academia. Who would know the difference if we polled like 100 people? But it's a very hierarchical system here. You're exactly right. Yeah, you're. Ex- I never thought about it that way, but you're exactly right. I don't think anybody outside of academia would kind of understand differences at all, right, in terms of what a professor means, what, what a fixed term instructor means. Um, you know, you're at the university and you're teaching or you're doing research. And they value that. Yeah. So I think they that's that. something we could maybe think from an outside perspective to open our doors more and think from other perspectives. It can help us for sure. I like that. I want to talk a little bit about your book, uh, Women Leading Change, Breaking the Glass, Ceiling, Cliff, and Slipper. So I want to know how this idea for this book came about. Absolutely. So I was um, presenting at a national conference in May of 2018 in Atlanta, and I was asked to actually talk about um, a a little bit of professional and work-life balance. I scored really high on the energy scale, these scales that we had to complete. So I said, what are you doing that that allows you to kind of be this energetic self? In the context of that, that presentation, I talked about some of the challenges that you mentioned earlier in our conversation today about sort of the ups and downs of um, being recruited from one big institution to another into an academic department, which could be classified as a glass cliff scenario. It was a, it was a unit that was in crisis and mm-hmm. there was a lot of change needed. So as I was presenting on that and talking also a little bit about the double bind, right? So the kind of idea of having to put in twice the amount of effort to get half the credit as men. Callie Renison, who's a professor at University of Colorado, raised her hand. She piped. She said, we need to write a book. And I thought she was be- just being emphatic in the moment. But she said, how many other people think we need to write a, b- write a book on this? And everybody's hand shot up. And I thought she was being emphatic. But when I got back to my laptop, there was an email saying, no, I'm serious. Would you be interested in thinking about writing a book together? So we put together a proposal. And rather than write only about our own experiences we wanted to include the perspectives of a number of diverse academic leaders so we invited 23 women from across the country Um, i'm proud that more than half of our uh, contributors identify as underrepresented minority identities that's huge yeah it's huge yep and so i feel like we've got a really rich and robust and diverse uh perspective to the book on issues such as the glass ceiling the glass cliff the glass slipper the double bind um, leading through resistance uh, negotiation strategies work work life balance networking mentoring and then when when you know when it's time to move up and out of leadership ah that's a good point because there are people that will take a position back in the faculty yep even here in our own institution we've seen that recently exactly so tell me what is for people listening what is the glass ceiling what is the glass cliff and what is a glass slipper? The glass ceiling is the idea of the challenges women face in achieving the high, highest levels of leadership. So typically we kind of see women kind of go to that first managerial level, but then not progress up, right? Not progress up to chief executive officer or chief financial officer. Uh, the glass cliff is really the idea that women tend to get disproportionately hired into and are elevated to leadership when organizations are in crisis. Like you did. Yes. yes. And the risk of failure is high. 
And then the third, the glass slipper, is really some an idea that I came up to. is a little bit of Cinderella comic relief um, around the, the painful realities of the glass ceiling and the, and, and the glass cliff. But it's also really kind of linked to the idea um, in the organizational psychology liter- literature, there's the idea of the think think leader, think male phenomenon. So when we think about leaders, people often associate with men, men with those positions and, and leadership traits such as strong, dominant, authoritative, uh, willing to taste risks, strategic, whereas women who share those qualities, right, it's not, it doesn't fit for most people's conceptualization, but people do, do conceptualize them as being able to fit into a glass slipper. So that was kind of the idea behind that. Ah, that's very interesting. I think it's leadership and it's also certain positions, wouldn't you say? So when I say my doctor, people say, oh, who is he? Yep. That's exactly right. Instead of, oh, I have a female DO. She's amazing. That's exactly right. And I think to your point there about medicine, like if, especially with surgery or some of those really traditionally male, male dominant um, medical professions, it would be really rare for somebody to say, and there's, there's a a riddle, a YouTube riddle online about uh, male surgeons so I can send you that link. Oh, very yeah. interesting. Good. What do you think after doing this research that you did for your book, after talking to all of these women with these diverse perspectives, what are the things that rose to the top to you of things that are most, we need to pay the most attention to? I think that, um, so we had kind of the first section really talked about institutional power structures, biases, and discrimination, and the ways that those continue to disadvantage women, especially at intersectional identities across multiple spaces. So really, you know, being mindful, going back to my point earlier about being mindful of our implicit biases, but really being committed to working on them as, as individuals and as community. So that's us thinking about who we hire, who we choose for leadership positions, who yep. we promote. Yep. Having, a, having accountability practices, but, you know, not just saying, oh, here's what diversity inclusion is. And if you've achieved diversity, saying, oh, well, that, that's done and now, now we're done. We really need to be on a continual and a fluid basis looking at that um, and being sure that we're, we're being very mindful of that. Ongoing work. Yep. And creating those um, inclusive mentoring spaces and networking spaces, uh, for, especially for women at intersectional identities who tend to be... Um, they tend to feel part of the out group, I think, in, in academic settings. So that would be kind of the first piece. And then the second piece is um, really the idea that nonetheless, even though these power structures and biases and, and uh, kind of challenges that we have in academia are in place, women still rise, right, until these and, and, and enact a lot of revolutionary change in their organizations. And I'm really proud that we have a number of presidents and provosts and deans really talking about that large-scale change that they're able to impact in, in academia and their, their universities and colleges. And I think that speaks to the resiliency, right, and the effective mentoring and networking that women have built for themselves and the um, confidence that they've had in themselves. And, and to go back to your point earlier, and then their, their ability to be the, their, authentic, their authentic selves in that process. So who can I be at work? Yep. Can I be a woman? Can I be outspoken? Can I be a black woman? Yes. Can I be a lesbian woman? Can I f- be free to be myself and have that safety at work that I can be my, my best self and not be looked at in a way that diminishes from that That's exactly, with the bias? That's exactly right. That's amazing. I'm really fascinated by the psychological safety work that's being done Mm -hmm. and um, talking about psychological safety at work. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that comes in when you talk about mentoring and feeling in the out group and feeling connected. One of the things we work really hard at at the work-life office is helping people connect to their communities. So when they join our office and they're a new employee, I sit down and have consultations where they're not in their unit or their division or their department. It doesn't go any farther than our office. 
but they can ask me how to connect with different groups or what they're interested in. And there's no judgment. It's here's some resources. We want you to feel connected because if you're connected, you'll stay. And if you stay, we're going to benefit from that. They say it takes about $80,000 to replace a position and more if you're talking labs and sciences and things like that. So the more we can do to build a strong community and be inclusive and, and empower. Okay. So we've talked about women in leadership the double bind, what women can do to empower themselves and to empower others. I think you and I have uncovered a lot more things that need to be researched. <laughs> I'm going to leave that one to you. <laughs> Write some more books for us. What what final thought would you like to leave our listeners with about women in leadership? Yeah, I think even though there is kind of this glass ceiling, the glass cliff, the glass slipper, and there's something recently called the broken rung, which is that women kind of fail to... Uh, reach that first managerial position. Oh. Um, so men are much more, for every 100 men who are promoted to that first manager, only 72 women are. So over time, men really outpace, women can never catch up. But I think um, not letting those hold you back, right? So there's a lot of strategies that we talked on today's session that really can, I think that your office is offering and to build capacity in, which is mentoring, networking in informal and informal spaces, um, supporting each other in advocacy settings. So in meetings when we're being talked over, being advocates for each other, um, talking about that in networking spaces and mentoring spaces. How do we do that better? Um, examining implicit biases. So I think there's a lot of positive momentum um, in each of those areas. And so I think, you know, hopefully in the next 50 years, we might see a change in what we are percent. Maybe there will be a new term and the glass ceiling will be less of a less of an issue for us. I think that's the hope that we have, that people can, um, we can have more diversity in every possible way in our leadership so we can learn from each other. We can continue to rise up and continue to make difference. And I know for myself, seeing women in leadership throughout my career is really empowering as well. Seeing someone that looks like you, seeing someone you can relate with, and having a daughter, I think, all the time about all the levels of government and change that she's seeing that I didn't see growing up. So hopefully each generation will do better. And I think that does start just side point. My soapbox is empowering girls. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I know yeah. you. the work yeah. that you do with the Women's Leadership Institute is talking about empowering college students as well. So that's right. I appreciate that. Yep. It yeah. starts early. Starts early, <laughs> like from the moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. From, from day one. <laughs> so thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciated our talk. And I hope that our listeners can pick up Women Leading Change, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Cliff and Slipper to learn more about that. And also can check out your MSU Today article on that exclamation point and get some thoughts on that. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you.